Hello, you are listening to 28th episode of CTOcast. Today is Wednesday, May 10th of 2017. You can listen all episodes uh, if you subscribe at CTOcast.com or in iTunes. I'm your host, Alex Stapinka from Amsterdam, and I'm happy to introduce uh, our guest, uh, Patrick Barron, uh, Head of Business Development in Ambisafe, uh, who is now in uh, San Francisco, as far as I know. Uh, hello, Patrick. Hello. Uh, usually, after that, uh, I give short uh, biography of, of our guest, but today I, I will try to do some experiment. And uh, Patrick, if you don't mind, could you, don't mind, could you please give short introduction of yourself, how uh, you get to uh, to Ambisafe, and what was your path there? What was your previous uh, career? Absolutely. So thank you very much for having me on. Uh, so. Currently, I'm head of business development at Ambisafe. We specialize in ICO services. Uh, we also do custom development for blockchain projects. And prior to this role, I was co-founder of a blockchain startup called Hitfin, uh, which was moving traditional financial assets onto the Ethereum blockchain where they could be traded peer-to-peer. I also am a consultancy advisor to Blockchain at Berkeley, which is UC Berkeley's student-led group. It's about 200 students, half of which are computer science majors, half are business students, and they teach them how to become consultants as well as how to build blockchain applications and then do consulting projects as well as internal projects that ultimately can spin out into startups. In addition to that, I'm also an adjunct instructor at the FinTech School in San Francisco. Just recently released a Blockchain 101 course, uh, which you can find at the FinTech School's website. Prior to all of that, I worked in a number of different industries, including the renewable energy industry, uh, software as a service, both for small to medium-sized businesses, as well as some government applications, as well as the logistics industry. And I was at Bank of America for a number of years, which is where I initially came across Bitcoin and uh, the concept of a blockchain. And it intrigued me so much because I was very curious as to how you could send value peer to peer without the need for a centralized third party like the one that I was working for. So that's a brief introduction. I studied business at Wake Forest University. I also uh, previously attended uh, a blockchain University in Mountain View, which is uh, uh, a wonderful, wonderful place to get your feet wet in the technology. So that's my background. Great. Uh, I believe we should give link to this 101 uh, course uh, about uh, blockchain you mentioned uh, now. But for those who are not currently aware of what is blockchain, uh, I believe uh, most of our listeners are aware of Bitcoin, uh, probably some other alternative cryptocurrencies, but uh, I'm sure that not all of them. And uh, could you please give such some kind of one-on-one on what is blockchain and cryptocurrency? Absolutely. So uh, when I when I speak about the blockchain in general, I am usually talking about the Bitcoin blockchain. This is because it was the first blockchain to be invented and most of the other blockchains that have come after it share a lot of the underlying technology. 
But the Bitcoin blockchain is a distributed database protocol that uses cryptography and a consensus algorithm to maintain a perpetually growing ledger of transactions. Um, there's a lot of words in there that you may be familiar with, may not be, but ultimately what it provides is an open, permissionless, borderless, decentralized ledger, a way to interact peer-to-peer -peer without the need for a central third party to make decisions on what transactions go through, uh, what transactions don't go through. And since the Bitcoin blockchain has come into existence, we've seen the proliferation of different flavors and different varieties of blockchains that use the same underlying technology, but will do things in a different way, either enabling smart contracts in the case of Ethereum. Uh, we also have closed blockchains such as Hyperledger Hi Hyper or Ripple. Uh, so it's a very diverse and very hyperledger yeah. that's uh, IBM thing right yeah it's it IBM is a founding member uh, it is managed by the Linux Foundation and is open sourced uh, but it is a it is a closed blockchain meaning that not everybody can just download the protocol and become a node on the network whereas with open blockchains like Bitcoin and ethereum, Anybody can download the software, anybody can view it, anybody can start mining transactions, mining being the process of verification. Uh, anybody can obtain the currency and start using the protocol. Okay, okay. Sorry for interruption, please go ahead. Yeah, so it, I'll just unpack that statement a little bit more. Uh, so being a distributed database, you know, what this means is as I just mentioned, anybody can become a member of this network. Anybody in the world can download the software. Uh, this makes these databases, these protocols, incredibly resilient. So we currently see that there are thousands of miners on both the Bitcoin as well as the Ethereum blockchain. And as long as two of these miners are still communicating back and forth, you have a functioning network. So it makes these it makes this system incredibly resilient against attack. Uh, the amount of computing power that's currently behind the Bitcoin blockchain is thousands of times more powerful than the top 500 supercomputers combined. This is because we're seeing very specific application chips, ASICs as they're called, uh, chips that are designed and manufactured to perform one specific function and that is to verify transactions on the blockchain. And a tremendous amount of electricity, uh, a tremendous amount of investment going into building these farms uh, for these mining operations. So it is incredibly diverse geographically, uh, and it is incredibly resilient because it is a database, uh, and because it's a distributed database. Now, the protocol is also incredibly important what that means is that it's not a website, right? There's no domain server that a government can go and snatch a domain name and shut down a website. This exists as a layer on top of the internet. Uh, it's similar to the email protocol, right? So it would require shutting down the entire internet if someone, a bad actor, a government agency were attempting to shut down the blockchain. 
Um, this has some incredibly valuable, this is incredibly valuable because what it means is that any two people can now transact peer-to-peer, -peer, can send very large amounts of value uh, with privacy, with complete control. Uh, it's, it's a completely different setup than what we're used to, right? What we're typically used to is a banking environment, a client-server relationship, where that bank controls all of the content. They control the accounts. They control the data that's entered into these databases, and they give you a little bit of access to see what is written into your account, how much you have. But ultimately, you don't control your funds when you have a bank. When you have a banking relationship, the bank controls those funds. And when you look at your balance online, what you're seeing is not the amount of money that is stored in the bank. What you're seeing is the amount that you have deposited and the bank then lends it out. They typically keep 10% of what you have deposited and they lend out the other 90%. Now this has been good in the form of wealth creation, uh, extending credit, and it, it has worked relatively well. At the same time, there's been some significant drawbacks to this client-server relationship. Uh, the Great Depression of 1929 being the most prominent example. This is why a run on the bank is so devastating to our financial system. If everybody decides that they want to withdraw their money at the, at the same time, then nobody gets their money. This is because the money isn't really there. Uh, it appears to be there. And if you alone try to go close out your account, you'll probably be able to close it out because they have your 10% and then they have the 10% from 10 other clients that have also deposited. So you can close it out. But if everybody goes at the same time, because we use fractional reserve banking, uh, there is a critical flaw in this system. Now contrast this with a blockchain. Contrast this with how Bitcoin does it. You control the private keys. If you control the private keys, then you are in control of 100% of your money. There is no way that anybody else can take that money from you. They can't lend it out without your permission. Uh, it is 100% yours. So it's really a paradigm shift from client server to blockchain-based value transfer. So sounds like the best thing in the world, but currently it's uh, not the main uh, currency in the world, right? So, uh, and I believe there are still some issues with Bitcoin as well or uh, other alternatives like Ethereum and for example uh, this uh, known thing as hard fork which happened uh, as far as I know uh, at the end of last year right uh, so yeah. there are still issues with that uh, and the price for like rates for um, for these currencies they are also uh, changing pretty fast in both ways so uh, And also another thing is uh, there are lots of them. So uh, uh, it's a question of credibility to, uh, to trust in certain crypto cryptocurrencies. So could you please elaborate on that thing? What kind of security comes with blockchain? And could you please also elaborate a little bit on uh, consensus algorithms? Uh, which are yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the consensus algorithm is what provides the security, or it is a major piece of what provides the security. So you can think of a consensus algorithm as being a voting mechanism. And every 10 minutes in the case of the Bitcoin blockchain, all of the miners take a vote 
and they are voting as to the current state of the transactions. That is, who owns what. And what's brilliant about the consensus algorithm that Bitcoin employs is that it uses game theory to incentivize bad actors to contribute to the benefit of the network as a whole. So what I mean by that is that because you have to expend electricity and computing resources in order to change the history of the blockchain, in order to even attempt to do it, uh, you have to expend a tremendous amount of electricity and computing resources, which cost money. Now, the beauty of the game theory aspect of this, Satoshi Nakamoto, the uh, anonymous creator of Bitcoin, was clearly a very well-schooled individual in game theory. The reason is because if you have the computing resources, if you have the electricity, and you have that type of capability to attempt to fork the blockchain or rewrite the history of the blockchain, then what you can do is actually apply that same, uh, you can apply that CPU power and that electricity to verifying transactions. The reason why you would do this is because new Bitcoin are created every time a new block gets mined. It's called a coin-based transaction. And so the more power that you have, uh, the more computing resources that you have, the more likely you are to be the one to find the next block, to be the one to verify the next block. Uh, you can think of it as a lottery. And all of the miners enter into this new lottery every 10 minutes. And the more lottery tickets that you have, the more likely you are to find that next block. In the case of uh, Bitcoin, it is CPU power. The more CPU power that you have, that's equivalent to having more lottery tickets. And so if you have a lot of CPU power and you are a bad actor and you want to, say, send your Bitcoin to one address and then simultaneously send it to an address that you own and uh, convince the rest of the network that uh, the address that you send it to that you own is where it should actually go, you're double spending those funds, uh, you can make a little bit of money doing that if you're, able to, uh, if you're able to convince the entire network, but it takes a tremendous amount of computing power and electricity. More so, if you pointed that same, those same resources towards just verifying the transactions and being a good actor, then you're going to make more Bitcoin and it's going to be more profitable to you than it would be to attempt to be a bad actor. So the that is part of the security behind this. That's the that's the mathematical security behind this. That's the uh, the securing of the chain of transactions. Now, of course, there is also public and private key cryptography that's used. And uh, to date, you know, these the the public and private keys that we use, the the algorithm that we use, has not been broken. Uh, and so there it's it's fully encrypted. Everything is all of the wallets are encrypted. Uh, you only have to reveal your public key and you can verify that you are, in fact, the have the corresponding private key by signing it. And so uh, the security of the amount of computing power that's pointed towards being a good actor combined with 
using advanced cryptography, encryption, uh, and these techniques create a system that is incredibly safe. If you are taking the proper precautions to say not lose your private key, if you lose your private key, you lose your money. Uh, that, is, that is a very real scenario that takes place. And so understanding the nature of this system and how it's different than say a, uh, a bank where if you, you know, if you lose your bank card, they issue you a new bank card. If you lose your private keys, then you know, that money is gone. It's a double-edged sword. It's a good thing because somebody would have to have your private key in order to steal your Bitcoin, for example. So as long as they can't get your private key, then your Bitcoin is secure. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you can think of it like this. Think of it as a, a home that has a solid steel door and it's concrete all the way around. No windows, uh, only one entrance. And you have a key to that door, right? Uh, that's, your, that's your private key that you're holding. Now, if you lose that key, you're not getting into that house. So what can you do? Well, you can make a copy of that key. You can give it to a trusted friend. You can give it to a neighbor. You can take it and you can store it in a vault in a trusted location. So if you lose your one set of keys, then you can go and you can get a second key. Uh, these are the types of things that you can do to prevent that scenario of losing your Bitcoin. Uh, great. Uh, can you please also uh, elaborate a little bit on alternative uh, blockchains? Uh, and you also mentioned that there are some of them uh, fully public, some of them Uh, private, I don't know, private or not fully private, but maybe some consortium which controls this blockchain. And also in this topic, could you please uh, touch the thing uh, which happened with Ethereum, which I already mentioned with this hard fork. So, because I, I, I assume that uh, Ethereum is a public uh, blockchain, but uh, and ledger cannot be rewritten, but it actually happened. So nobody secured. Yeah. Yeah. So. What we'll start with the, uh, what happened with Ethereum. So Ethereum is an open blockchain. Uh, that's also known as permissionless. You don't need anybody's permission to become a part of it. The other type of blockchains are closed blockchains or permissioned. That is, you have to get permission from the owners of the blockchain in order to start using it. Uh, so that's public and private. Now, what happened with Ethereum is that there was a creation. Uh, it was a decentralized autonomous organization, also known as a DAO. Now, this particular DAO decided to call itself the DAO. So there's an important distinction. There's the concept of a DAO, and then there is the DAO, right? So this very first decentralized autonomous organization uh, was a fundraising mechanism where everybody contributed funds into a pool. They crowdfunded a pool of capital. And then the idea was to have entrepreneurs submit business plans and everybody was able to vote on whether or not to fund that entrepreneur uh, And their vote was weighted according to how much they had contributed. If you own 10% of the DAO, if you contributed 10% of the total amount, then you, your vote was 10%. Uh, and, it's, and they wrote the, uh, the laws and the governance and how this was all going to work into the, into the DAO. Now, what happened was that it raised a lot of money very quickly, 150, 000, excuse me, $150 million dollars. And 
it uh, was not battle tested. Uh, proper precautions were not taken when writing this smart contract. A, uh, a hacker or uh, an engineer, somebody who understood the technology, saw that there was a, uh, there was a way to move the money and they went in there and they moved the money. Uh, they operated the smart contract in a way that it was written to operate, but it was unintentionally written to operate that way. So there's an important distinction. And, and they moved something like $60 million into uh, a holding account. So there was a backup mechanism where funds could move from the main account to a holding account that would then be distributed to the entrepreneur. Uh, what this individual did or a group of individuals did is that they moved it from the main account to a holding account and then they were going to move it out into uh, an exchange and uh, get away with you know, many, many millions of dollars. And so uh, there was a holding period in, in this sub account, right? It was like 20 or 30 days. So it gave the community some time to take a deep breath, take a step back, and uh, talk about different options, ways to proceed. Now, there were two camps. There was a camp that said, hey, look, the blockchain did not fail. The smart contract worked exactly as it was written to work. It just so happens that they wrote it poorly. They didn't think about this particular way that it could work. But the contract actually worked the way that it was supposed to. The blockchain executed exactly the way it was supposed to. And this camp said, if we fork, if we essentially, if all of the miners decide together in consensus to rewrite this transaction and undo what had been done by this hacker, then we're creating a moral hazard. The next time that something like this happens, is the community going to come together and bail out uh, and, and bail out whoever it is? Now, the other side of this argument was, look, they're taking $60 million dollars. And we as a community can come together and we can undo this transaction. Now, when I say undo this transaction, it's not actually undoing it. What happened is that all of the miners, all of the verifiers on this network decided in unison together that they were going to rewrite the history. So when that day came, what happened was that most of the miners decided that we are going to rewrite this history and move these funds back into the hands of their rightful owner and we're going to shut down the DAO. Uh, and that is the blockchain that we call Ethereum. Now, there was a group of, uh, of miners who decided that, hey, this moral hazard is not okay and uh, I want a more pure blockchain environment that does not fork. So what happened is that there was a hard fork. And, uh, and this group of miners decided we're going to continue developing on the old blockchain and let this individual get away with the money. Uh, the contract was written in a way he or she or they executed the contract in the way that it was designed to work. It was designed poorly, but it worked exactly as it was designed to do. And they should get away with it. And we're going to stay on here. And that's known as Ethereum Classic. So that's why there's two versions of Ethereum. Uh, and now this is this mindset is playing into uh, the Bitcoin scaling debate. So currently, Bitcoin has a one megabyte maximum amount of space that can be put into each block. And that megabyte is made up of different transactions. Me sending you a Bitcoin, my neighbor sending my parents a Bitcoin, all of these transactions that take place, uh, the miners combine them together and then put them into a 
a block. And the block has an artificial cap, that one megabyte that was originally written by Satoshi Nakamoto. And so now the question is, do we hard fork and make the, uh, make the, the block size larger? Uh, or do we just keep going and, and come up with a different way that doesn't require a hard fork? And so there, this is a very contentious debate, and Bitcoin is certainly at risk, if there's a hard fork, of having Bitcoin and then Bitcoin Classic. That very well could happen. Uh, hopefully it won't happen, but it could happen. So that is, that is how we got two versions of Ethereum. Uh, and I believe I answered your question. I, don't, I believe there was another part at the beginning, but I don't remember what it was at this point. Uh, actually, you completely answered my question. Let's now speak uh, about such thing as app coins and protocol coins. First, first of all, what is that? What is difference? Uh, that is kind sure. Of Great question. So, a protocol coin is uh, ether, the the native currency for the Ethereum blockchain, uh, and you can think of you can think of uh, the other type of coin as existing on top of Ethereum, right? So I can issue Patrick coin on top of the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, and the protocol coin is the base layer protocol. So Ethereum is the protocol. Bitcoin is the protocol. In order to establish a protocol, uh, you need a native currency if it's going to be an open public blockchain. So those are, those are protocol coins. Now, within Ethereum, you can issue coins on top of it and coins that can do work. So, for example, uh, Augur. Augur is a decentralized prediction market that exists on top of the Ethereum blockchain. In order to access Augur, in order to make a bet on Augur, you have to get the native token. Uh, and so this is similar to going to an arcade and giving the owner of the arcade at the front counter $5, and they're giving you $5 worth of tokens that work in the pinball machine and the duck hunt machine. And so in order to access their platform, those machines, the arcade games, you have to get that native currency. You have to get that app coin. Uh, and so it's not a protocol because Augur, for example, is not a new blockchain. It's leveraging the Ethereum blockchain. It's just an application written on top of it. Does that help clarify? Uh, yes, absolutely. And now we can start discussing finally what is ICO, initial coin offering. So an ICO is an initial coin offering, and there are different types of ICOs. Uh, the, there's an ICO for a new protocol. For example, when Ethereum first launched, what they did is that Uh, the Ethereum Foundation sold Ether, which is the native token, uh, for Bitcoin. They said, if you give us one Bitcoin, you're going to get X amount of Ether. Uh, I don't remember what the number is at this point. And so that is a protocol level ICO, launching a brand new protocol. Uh, now, you could also do an ICO for an app coin. Uh, so, for example, uh, Augur used the ICO mechanism to sell their, uh, their native token. And so they released a specific amount. And by the way, for these, for these app coins, for these native tokens, you can set the monetary policy. You can also set the monetary policy for a protocol for a new blockchain. You can decide whether it is inflationary, deflationary, how many tokens will be released, when they'll be released, 
if it's reissuable, uh, you can create whatever monetary policy you want and you write it into the rules. So we have protocol ICOs such as Ethereum. Uh, we have AppCoin ICOs such as Augur. And then now what we're seeing is equity-based ICOs. And so you can think of this as a more traditional financing round for a startup. It doesn't necessarily have to be a blockchain company. Uh, what we're seeing is lots of companies that are interested in leveraging this crowdfunding mechanism to sell equity in their business. Uh, and this is an equity ICO. We at Ambisafe believe that this is going to be the future of fundraising. Uh, the capital markets are going to move to this mechanism, right? So this is, this is filling the gap of, for example, Oculus Rift, right? They did a Kickstarter campaign, raised a lot of money, uh, built an amazing product, and then sold to Facebook for $2 billion. Now, the backers of that Kickstarter campaign, they didn't get any of that $2 billion that was, uh, that was given to them in exchange for equity by Facebook. Uh, with an initial coin offering, if you're using the blockchain to issue equity, you now have a claim on that business and the assets and the future earnings. Uh, so it's similar to an IPO in that the coin then becomes tradable on an exchange. So you can liquidate. Uh, there's instant liquidity, assuming somebody wants to buy it. Uh, but it's also similar to a Kickstarter campaign in that it's very early stage. So there's high risk, as there always is in, in backing startups. Uh, but there is liquidity. There is a larger pool of investors. And it's very easy to access this. So to recap, protocol ICOs, that's Ether. Uh, AppCoin ICOs, an example would be Augur. And then equity ICOs is the next phase. Any examples of uh, equity ICOs? So uh, one example of an equity ICO that I can point to is Task Fund. Now this is, an, uh, this is a crypto hedge fund. So essentially people who are buying in uh, are giving their cryptocurrency to these investors who are then going to reinvest it in other crypto-based companies. Uh, it's not a pure equity ICO that I, uh, as, as I just described, uh, in that, well, it is in that you have ownership in the business. Uh, it is still within the crypto space. So that's why I say it's not, uh, it's not pure. Although we at Ambisafe uh, have been retained to do the very first equity ICOs. Uh, we haven't announced the, the companies that we'll be doing them for just yet, uh, but this is in our pipeline and we're very excited about it. And it's something that we will be uh, publicly disclosing within the next couple of months. Okay, now we finally coming to Ambisafe. Um, and you already mentioned that you already got first clients. Could you all well, describe what is Ambisafe? What are you doing? What is your uh, service proposition? And uh, after that, let's probably discuss uh, some uh, more details about the mechanics behind the ICO. What, uh, what is that? Yes, absolutely. So Ambisafe, 
uh, was founded several years ago originally as a multi-currency wallet, being able to hold different cryptocurrencies. Uh, we started getting requests for ICO-related services to help companies who are focusing on building different types of projects uh, streamline the ICO process. And so we have since built out a turnkey ICO solution. So what that includes is PR and marketing. Uh, we uh, help with the social media management, press releases. Uh, we also can assist with the technical aspects of writing a white paper. So the very first white paper was the Satoshi white paper. And ever since then, everybody who has done an ICO has released a white paper. Uh, some of them are more similar to a traditional prospectus that lays out what the token is, what you're getting in exchange for it, who's involved with it, answering all of these important questions. Uh, we have uh, we've shipped more products than anybody else in the blockchain space over 22. Uh, we so we help with the with the PR and the marketing. Uh, we also translate the documents into local languages. Uh, we provide white labeled wallets so uh, customers can go directly to the website and participate in the ICO. We issue the token on the blockchain. Uh, we uh, also have exchange listing services, so we have partnerships with lots of exchanges worldwide. This provides liquidity for the coin, uh, which is very attractive. You don't have to have your money locked up for the traditional five or seven years like you do with a VC fund, for example. Uh, and we also do other things like work with attorneys to incorporate the company in blockchain-friendly jurisdictions. Uh, we work with escrow agents to hold the funds so that the community knows that it's not the funds are not just going to disappear. Uh, and then due diligence is a huge part of what we do. We, of course, do our own due diligence. And then we work with third-party providers so that the startup can uh, have due diligence done by independent third parties. And then the third parties provide their, uh, their findings to the community. So full service, everything that you need start to finish. Um, NBSafe has 25 employees. We're headquartered in San Francisco. Uh, we have a development shop in Kiev. Uh, we, uh, I believe that the total market cap of all the tokens that are powered by NBSafe smart contracts is over $77 million last time I checked. Um, it's really an exciting time. I mean, we get, I get to see as head of business development, I get to talk to entrepreneurs that are doing incredibly interesting things, both in the cryptocurrency space as well as outside the cryptocurrency space. So uh, some of the industries that have approached us to help them with their fundraising uh, include drug discovery companies, uh, traditional mining services companies, not cryptocurrency mining, but uh, natural resource mining, uh, venture capitalists that want to raise funds for their next uh for their next ICO, or excuse me, for their next fund. Uh, this is really interesting because as I mentioned before, a traditional VC partner has to wait five to seven years for a liquidity event in order to be able to cash out. Uh, we're raising funds for a VC that will be tokenized. And if the backer wants to uh, liquidate their, you know, let's say that they, they get a quick exit in 18 months and the value of that token shoots up dramatically, uh, there's a secondary market for these tokens where it can be traded. So uh, we also, of course, do custom blockchain development. Typically, companies that we work with for ICOs will retain us to help 
develop aspects of the blockchain related uh, project. And it is, uh, it is a really exciting space to be in. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate and, and enjoy it tremendously, if you can't tell. Yeah, I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> Uh, could you please also, like, since we are CTO cast, right? So you mentioned uh, two interesting things. So the first one is development team in Kyiv. Could you please elaborate on that? Uh, what uh, kind of uh, technical challenges or uh, what actually you are doing or is doing this, tech, uh, this uh, development team? And uh, what uh, technical services do you provide for uh, your customers? So if, you, if we skip... Uh, very important uh, PR marketing, uh, due diligence, uh, attorney services. Uh, what uh, do you have uh, specifically technical, what you provide to your customers? Yeah, so we have full stack engineers. Uh, you know, everybody who is programming in the blockchain space started somewhere else. Uh, Andre Zamovsky, who is our CEO, he is, uh, he is Ukrainian. And so this is, uh, this is why we have such strong ties to Uh, to Ukraine, and our team has a wide variety of programming skills, including uh, Java, Python, C+, network administration, cybersecurity, uh, I mean, you name it. So UX, UI, we, we have the ability to do everything related to uh, building a project, not just the blockchain capabilities. Now, of course, You know, I would say our most valuable skill because blockchain engineers, smart contract architects, people like this are few and far between at this point. Uh, hopefully that will change. I think that that is changing. It's kind of an education piece. Plus, as the industry continues to grow, it's going to naturally bring more people in. Uh, if you're if you're a Python engineer, you know, look at look at the source code, look at the documentation on GitHub around Ethereum, uh, around Solidity. And, uh, you know, really, I would encourage you to dive in because the new applications that can be built are only limited by our imagination. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, there's our team has the ability to deliver on just about anything, right? We haven't seen any projects that were technically uh, in, incapable of, uh, but the blockchain engineering is by far the most valuable skill set that, that our team has, I would say. Okay, and uh, if we discuss that point about the custom blockchains uh, and actually uh, areas and domains where it's applicable, uh, could you please uh, yeah, speak about that? You also mentioned such thing as traditional mining, <laughs> so it's sounds for me pretty strange. Uh, so, what areas uh, where you can where blockchain is applicable do you see? Yeah, so uh, the the traditional mining. This is a, a mining services company that provides uh, that provides various uh, software services to mining companies, and their project has nothing to do with blockchain technology except for the fact that they want to utilize the ICO mechanism for one managing the shares. Uh, so once you issue shares on the blockchain, they are immutable. They are not going anywhere. Uh, and you can also create liquidity for the shares, which is nice for a startup founder. Uh, instead of having to find an angel to come in and buy out you know, the founder's shares if the valuation of the company goes up. Uh, but this company, they're, they're a traditional software company and uh, want to use this technology uh, for, uh, uh, for share management and for raising funds. 
And what is uh, custom blockchain development? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, good question. So custom blockchain development is, uh, let's say that you are an entrepreneur and you want to build uh, a, a new a new application, right? A new widget. You need a, a smart contract that's going to, uh, you know, let's say you're going to build a weather derivative contract for farmers in uh, rural Kansas, right? And so you need a smart contract that is going to, uh, accept funds from both sides and then is going to take, uh, take in data like the temperature and whether or not it's raining and, uh, uh, you know, what the humidity is. And based on the parameters that were programmed into this contract, you're either going to pay out the funds to the farmer if it was a drought or if the farmer had a great year and, uh, and, you know, the protection wasn't needed, uh, according to the parameters of the contract, then it's going to, uh, pay that premium to whoever it is that took the other side of the contract. So that would be uh, a weather derivative contract, for example. And uh, what our team can do is that our team can scope out uh, a project like that, and we can program in the parameters into the smart contract. So that would be the custom blockchain development. Uh, what we focus on is primarily Ethereum-based smart contract development. You know, most of the innovation is taking place on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, you know, we we typically, if your if your goal is to create a new blockchain from scratch, then you should really have that knowledge yourself. Uh, you know, and and most of the people that do create new blockchains, they are very well versed in uh, all the nuances of the technology and cryptography and these types of things that are needed. Uh, so most of the custom development that we specialize in, as well as uh, what we're asked to do, is in the Ethereum space, as well as Bitcoin, I should say. Uh, you know, Tether is a project that, that we worked on, uh, the U.S. dollar-backed uh, representation on the Bitcoin blockchain. But the majority of the custom development is, uh, is on Ethereum. Okay. Actually, it's clear. And what do you think about the future of uh, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and Ambisafe, where you are going? Uh, what are next steps you, you would like to achieve? Yeah, so I think that the future is very bright for this technology. And uh, I think that what we're going to see is more and more interesting applications moving over. Things that I can't imagine, right? Imagine trying to... Uh, imagine coming up with Facebook or Twitter back in 1995, right? That you just, you, you couldn't perceive it, right? It wasn't, uh, and so the most interesting applications are yet to come. Hopefully it's somebody who's listening to this podcast right now and is thinking, you know what? I bet I could do that with this. And now that is possible, right? And so looking for things that are possible now with this new tool set that, that weren't po possible before, are the most interesting applications that are going to disrupt very large industries, change the nature of finance, change the nature of governance, change the nature of industries that I can't even imagine existing as of right now. Uh, and, you know, being a part of it, having the skill set, understanding what the technology is, if you can program on this uh, new tool set, then that is an incredibly valuable skill set. I can't emphasize that enough. The number of blockchain engineers and smart contract architects that exist today uh, are it, it's we need more and uh, and if this is your skill set you know by all means please get in touch patrick at ambisafe.co would love to speak with you 
And, uh, and, you know, if we don't have a project for you immediately, can certainly find, uh, find projects for you. We'll have one have one soon. Uh, what Ambisafe is doing next is that we are building a decentralized exchange. And our decentralized exchange is going to be more like a stock exchange as opposed to being more like a Forex exchange. So there's currently a, yeah, 120 or more exchanges, cryptocurrency exchanges today, and they provide a very valuable service, exchanging these tokens, right? Being able to sell your Bitcoin and buy Ether. Uh, that is an incredibly valuable thing to have that on-ramp and off-ramp for different fiat currencies in different parts of the world. What we feel is missing is for these equity-based tokens, uh, understanding what that token represents, what it entitles you to who it is that's behind that project, right? So it's no longer just a, uh, it's no longer just needed in order to access an application. It actually has a representation behind it. Perhaps it is share of a company. Perhaps it is the title to a house. Uh, perhaps it is some other type of asset. But being able to access the information of what this token represents is something that's missing that we're providing. Also, because it is peer-to-peer -peer and decentralized, the order book is going to exist, uh, or excuse me, the order book exists within a smart contract on the blockchain. Uh, so it'll be truly decentralized. And, and this is something that the world hasn't seen yet. Uh, you know, currently we have very large stock exchanges that are walled gardens that you have to work with uh, multiple parties in order to do any type of transaction. This is democratizing access to these different financial tools. Uh, so it's going to provide people who've never had access to financial assets of this sort uh, an ability to uh, to put their money to work in this way. It is also going to empower people uh, all over the world to access capital like they've never done before in exchange for equity. So uh, what we're releasing is a decentralized exchange, and uh, that's that is uh, going to be coming in the next few weeks. We're very, very excited about it. And again, if you, uh, you know, if this is something that interests you, if you feel that you have a skill set that could contribute to this project, would love to hear from you. It sounds really inspiring. Uh, thank you very much, Patrick, for your time uh, and participating in this podcast. I hope, and I hope that everything will be like you are saying. And I wish you good luck as well as to be safe. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, dear listeners, we love your comments. Uh, please go to ctocast.com or to iTunes and leave your feedback. It's our fuel and what keeps uh, us going forward with this podcast. Uh, thank you very much and don't forget to subscribe. Bye. Subscribe.